Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 30 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this, our episode number uh, 30, uh, 30 uh, on uh, January 14th, uh, we are going to be talking through a series of things, including a chapter review on John uh, chapters 12 and 13. And we're going to circle back on from where we left off in the last uh, week's uh, podcast and finish talking about district meet number three in review. In particular, Scott has a whole bunch of very interesting stats uh, to review. And then we're going to pick up where we left off uh, also in last week's podcast with some rules ideas that we had kind of brainstormed or had heard from different places and so forth and talk about some of the pros and cons and so forth of each of those things. We do have a listener question that we want to get to, and then we might talk about uh, Great West sort of things and upcoming stuff with regard to the Great West Invitational. I've got a short CBQZ districts update and a couple of other announcements to make. And I think that'll be most of our topics. So with that, uh, why don't we dive into John chapter 12? And uh, Scott, what are your thoughts? So I've already taken a look at John chapter 12 a couple weeks ago and used some of my um, thoughts to uh, load up tweets for the PNW Quizzing Twitter account. And so you can head over to at PNW Quizzing on Twitter to see a daily tweet of something interesting. Um, I try to make it not exclusively PNW-specific, but material and Bible quizzing-specific, so that it is of interest to many people. But one thing I was noting in Chapter 12 is there are some really good chapter reference words. So within CBQZ, it will be the re- the words in red, and that, that means that they occur once in this chapter. Um, but you see words like six days, or meanwhile, or judgment, like judgment on this world, uh, remain forever. And so whenever you see those sorts of red words that um, you probably you may know are good basis for um, chapter-only reference questions, within right within CBQZ, you can search them, and you can see where else they occur. And I always found it helpful for a word like meanwhile to see all of the occurrences of meanwhile and kind of map out how those might be asked in questions. So actually, meanwhile appears four times in the material, once in John 4, once in John 12, and twice in John 18. So that would mean that in John 4 and 12, there might be a chapter reference question that can be written there. On John 18, because meanwhile appears twice in the same chapter, it would have to be a basis for a chapter verse reference question. But CBQZ presents you visually with these words in red. So if you're um, a reference question quizzer, you can zero in on those words, and then you can also search them and see where else they occur. This is a pretty... Pretty good chapter. Um, it is long, which definitely adds some difficulty for both quotes, chapter references, chapter verse references. Um, not really situations, and definitely not interrogatives and multiple answers aren't more difficult if they come from a long chapter or not. But it's long, so um, those question types that contain a reference will probably be harder than in a shorter chapter. But this chapter has a good mix of unique material throughout. There's global keywords, global unique words in blue. Um, there's chapter unique words in red. And then there's the unique phrases in green just scattered throughout. Um, and I think, yeah, there's not a whole lot to take away because of that. But there's no giant pockets of lots of reference questions. There's 
there might be a few verses that are really rich in unique words, like verse 3 and verse 24, um, maybe verse 40. So those are verses to kind of make sure you know a little extra well, because there's, there might be a greater number of interrogatives coming from those verses because of the existence of those global unique words. Those are a few of my initial thoughts on chapter 12. Yeah, I had something similar with regard to unique words. I, I, I didn't actually run through and count them, but in visually scanning the blue words in CBQZ, the unique words, globally unique words, there's a, a an awful lot of them that just sort of scream out to be uh, straightforward, very, very fast-jumping standard questions, which, you know, at a district meet is probably, you know, you can... Uh, pick those up. Uh, that'd be great. But I think in terms of coming up toward Great West and thinking about Great West, if you are preparing for Great West, and, and you really should because it's an enormously fun meet to attend, uh, I think the speed of jumping is going to be considerably snappier at Great West than what we might be used to at our district level. And so some of these uh, Unique words in, in chapter 12 are great opportunities to be able to speed up uh, some of your jumping here. But it does mean that you have to sit down, write out each, uh, each of these uh, unique words, figure out a couple of syllables, find what's unique about them within the first couple of syllables or first syllable, depending on what they are, and then figure out the logical part of answering each of those and putting lists together and, and practicing and memorizing those lists in addition to the actual material. It's, it can be a lot of fun. And the rewards that you get from it can be fairly significant uh, as well. And like, and, and I'm seeing this, you know, kind of scattered throughout the material. You like in verse 40, uh, blinded their what or hardened their what? You know, it, it's uh, kind of yearns out for uh, a, a a quick, quick, fast jumping bligh or hard, hardened, hard, h a r. I think H-A-R is probably key. Uh, hard work and hard den. So there's hard in 40, uh, 438 and 660, uh, but hard dened only happens in 1240. So it's understanding like, okay, what syllable makes it key? What sounds make it key? At what point can I jump? Uh, and then knowing if the quiz master is going to give you zero extra syllables, maybe a mouth shape, maybe one extra syllable, kind of depending upon the, you know, the pace of the quiz master, depending upon what room you're in, that's going to vary uh, to some degree. So being able to understand that, kind of internalize that, predict where that's going to be, and then jump where you want to jump to be able to get the keenness that you need uh, based on your practice. That's all part of, uh, part of the prep work that needs to go into chapter 12. And in chapter 12, there are three uh, unique word pairs, where there's an adjective and then there's a noun. So there's pure nard, there's young donkey, and there's single seed. There might be others, but those are the three that I see. And those definitely lend themselves to the two-word interrogative questions where the interrogative word comes first. So like, what nard, what donkey, what seed? Now, of course, you will probably hear the pure what, young what, or single what. But you you will hear the what nard, what donkey, what seed. And much like on reference questions where inflection plays a part, because in the English language and maybe other languages too, um, we like to kind of go up in inflection the syllable before the ending syllable. In a similar manner, I found that quizmasters often in these two-word interrogative questions where the what is the first word, they read that what with that same sort of up inflection. And so they would read a question like, what is the place where 
where Jesus was, they would read that what much differently than they would for like what donkey. There's like a little different sound to it. And so if you observe a quiz master who consistently reads these sorts of interrogative questions with a little bit different sound on that what, you can kind of be on the lookout for it. And um, if you get the sense that they're reading the what that way, just jump um, because of the kind of intel that you've done and hope that you're right that 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 second word is both a unique word and the final word in the question. Yep, absolutely. All right, well, let's move on to chapter 13. Uh, what do you think about uh, 13? So 13 um, is 38 verses, so shorter than chapter 12. It looks like, let's see here, there's one, two, three, four, five, there's eight key verses out of the 38 verses. So a large amount of the chapter is not um, not not designated as a key verse, which means if you want a good way to get a leg up on those key verse specialists, learn a chapter like this, where it's very unlikely that they're going to be able to get non-key verse questions from chapter 13. Um, this chapter is a lot less unique than chapter 12, so it might be a little bit less memorable to memorize. One thing to keep in mind as you're getting into these um, these teens chapters in John, which are very memorable and they're probably among um, the more familiar Bible passages to people, which is kind of a double-edged sword because um, it might be more familiar um, because you've heard it before in other um, things like Bible studies or Awana or youth group, but you may be familiar with it in a slightly different version, Um, especially a lot of the Gospels. You could even be familiar with it in the King James or the New King James. And so sometimes it, especially on these key verse questions where it needs to be word perfect, you may have to spend a little extra time um, making sure you've got every single word right when your brain maybe remembers it in a different version from your childhood. Yeah, very true, very true. The thing that hit me about uh, chapter 13 is very similar to one or actually more than one of the chapters that we've reviewed in past podcasts, and it just sort of screamed out at me as look at all these situation questions. Uh, you know, six and seven and eight and nine and 10 and 12 and 13. Uh, I mean, just the list keeps going and going and going where I, I, I see all these situation questions, really great situation questions too. Uh, usually single simple answers like who said, uh, or who was it, who, uh, who said it and to whom was it said, things like that. And that's about the extent of it. Uh, but a lot of opportunities here for situation questions, uh, if you want to get yourself some practice. And I would refer you back to either last, was it last week's episode or the, maybe the episode before last week where we talked about how different strategies to how to prepare for situation questions. I think 13 is definitely has some opportunities there. There's also a, a, a fair bit of not quite as much as in 12, but there's still a fair bit of unique words in here. Uh, not so much the double unique words together. In fact, I don't see any just in a quick scan here. So those, the, not, not those double words uh, together that Scott was talking about, but definitely an opportunity for some fast jumping on some words, not quite to the extent of what you would see in 12, but those opportunities uh, do still exist. So I have an interesting observation here. In verse 10, it begins, Jesus answered, and then a quotation begins. And two things to keep in mind that could make a situation question invalid. One is that um, 
you can't start a quotation if it's not within the first like two verses of the quotation. Now, um, there are there is like a break in verse twelve when it says when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place, and then a, a separate quotation starts up. So you know the do you understand is probably a, a valid place to start that one. Similarly, you call me teacher and lord, and rightly so for that is what I am is also a valid place to start it. But the start of verse 14 might not, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet. Um, similarly, with, similarly with verse 15, since it is not in the first two verses of the start of the quotation. Now, well, my question for you, Griffin, is obviously, you know, this applies to all questions, not just situation questions. But we can't ask a quizzer to clarify a pronoun um, that's more, if the clarification is out of context, so more than five verses away. So take, you know, in, it's in verse 10 we're introduced that it's Jesus talking. So by the time we get down to verse 15, 16, we're kind of out of context already. Now, once you get down to verse 21, it says, after he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified. So it kind of identifies Jesus again. Would you think that I can use, like when I'm writing a question, the identification of Jesus in verse 21 as the pronoun clarification of he or like the who said it for um, quotations in, say, verse 20? Or verse 19? Uh, except there is no he in 19 and 20, but let's just assume, let's assume 13, 19 started, he said, quote, I am telling you, right? Um, yeah, yeah. That sort of thing. Um, so I don't know. I'm really conflicted because here's the thing. Obviously, it's it, the, the he refers to Jesus. And even if I'm a little bit confused about that, uh, if I'm judging, I can go back to, you know, verse 10 and go, okay, clearly it's, it's Jesus. And it's just that 21 is, is saying that again. But at the same time, I'm kind of like, well, arguably, you really have to read linearly forward in English, I guess. Although maybe no, no, I guess you don't have to. I guess, uh, you know, a fiction writer could start off with he said blah, blah, blah. And then a few sentences later clarify who the he is, I suppose. But the general convention in English is to start with a proper name and then go to the pronoun, you know, afterward as a, as a, as a replacement for the proper name. Um, I think, I think technically the way the rules are are written right now and i'd i'd have to scour them very carefully but i i think i would have to be okay with allowing 21 to clarify uh 19 but i'm almost wondering if maybe that's something that the rules should clarify to prevent yeah i think i agree because i mean in 21 the introduction of jesus the identification of who this is is meant to set up the quotation in verse 21 that starts very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. Um, we can definitely read the context and say, oh, oh, well, of course, Jesus was the one talking in previous verses. But the point of quizzing rules is not to is not to set out a rule and then say, unless it's super, super obvious, you know, mm-hmm. then you can break then you can break this rule, even though like no quizzer would have a problem with a, a situation question asked anywhere in verses 10 through 21 with the he said being Jesus. The who said it being Jesus, but I think it it could definitely get tricky in some contexts um, using a clarification later on as the clarification for a pronoun and not a preceding clarification. 
Right. The other thing, quizzers, you should and coaches, you should keep in mind is while Scott and I agree on this, uh, we are not the only people who write questions in the uh, Bible quizzing universe. So uh, and we are also not the only two quiz masters in the uh, Bible quizzing universe, uh, thankfully. Uh, so uh, I would caution anyone challenging if uh, if there's a, you know, a, a verse you know, uh, verse 18 of chapter 13, uh, who said it, uh, I, I would, I would caution on a challenge. Sure. Yeah. And I think, I mean, you can definitely challenge because you think it's tricky or misleading, but your burden of proof is going to be much higher. Um, if you're trying to get a question thrown out because it, because it's tricky or misleading than for a different reason. <laughs> yeah. And I don't, I don't know that this would be tricky or misleading. I think it's more along the lines of uh, it's trying to make the argument that it's invalid. And I, I don't think there's, I don't think there, there's enough in the rule book that actually would cause you to get there. I don't think there's any language defining a situation question that would get this scenario to be an invalid question. Now, one sub bullet under invalid questions is you know, the question being tricky or misleading. Yeah. Right, um, but right. that's, that's, that's kind of the catch all where I really need you to sh- like prove it to me and explain yeah. why. And it, I mean, that's such as I, I really hate that rule because it is incredibly subjective. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, the burden of proof is, is very high in, in going about that. Yeah. I'm trying to remember there was, um, there was a question in the last meet that I thought was kind of tricky um, yes. So it was about the born blind. Um, we know, so in chapter nine, they're talking about, um, is this the one you say was born blind? We know he was born blind. Um, and I think I had some sort of interrogative or reference question that was like, ask whom from verse 21. And it was, and the answer was like the one born blind or something like that where you could argue that it was tricky the way that it had you go back, but not anyway. I'm, I probably shouldn't come up with these right on the fly when we're recording, but um, it was one of those where the way everything was phrased made it fairly tricky, even though if you took five seconds to look at it, it made sense to you. Um, it still took you five seconds, not one second to see what it was. Yeah. Yeah. Understandable. All right, so uh, shall we move into Meet 3 Review Part 2 and talk about the stat stuff that you've discovered? Um, so I'm going to go over some fun stats things, not just from District Meet 3, but also for the whole district up through Meet 3. So, so far this year, Andrew has quizzed out in just over 90% of his quizzes, which is the best rate. And that's quite impressive because his team has been in finals, so that... Even though for stats purposes, finals quizzes don't count, for the, the fiddly stats that I take, I do kind of look at all of the quizzes. Um, and Andrew has the highest rate of quizzing out, even though he has been in, I believe, seven finals quizzes. So that's quite impressive. The second highest quiz out rate is Aiden. He's quizzed out in 88.888% of his quizzes, which is an awesome, awesome rate. Um, at District Meet 3, Gig Harbor recorded the first fifth person bonus of this year. So which was in my over, room. They put up over 300 points in that quiz and um it was cool to see. We've definitely we have a handful of teams that have had five members on the team. Uh but Gig Harbor is the first team to get it done and get that fifth person bonus in a quiz. 
So let me let me tell you about that. That happened in my room. Uh, and when uh, so my wife, Sherilyn, was the uh, scorekeeper. And when they got their fifth person uh, bonus, uh, she she basically not not particularly loud, just kind of casual, not casually, but ju- she did announce fifth person bonus, you know, kind of kind of, you know, but but in sort of a normal tone. And there was this moment of, um, I don't know, for half a second to a second, like the whole room kind of simultaneously whispered, wow, you know, it was pretty cool. Yeah, I love that. Um that sort of team quizzing, and we're going to touch on that when we hit our rules ideas. So this year, Brooke has won 161 jumps, which is by far the most of any quizzer. Second and third are Abigail and Andrew, who have won 137 and 132 jumps. Now, all of those quizzers are on the teams that have made finals most of the meets, so they, they obviously have more quizzes available to them, but they are still winning a lot of jumps and getting a lot of correct questions. And question on that. Are you counting consolation uh, quizzes in, in that total as well? Absolutely. It's just total jumps one. So that's total number of correct and incorrect questions this year. Yeah. So, I mean, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be appreciably different other, I mean, you're losing out maybe on a, a handful of, of bracket quizzes and then on, on, on finals, but uh, yeah. Yeah. Cause the, the finals teams are often um, quizzing 10 or 11 times. And I think the average number of quizzes is nine for each team. Yeah. So uh, moving on, Abigail is nine for nine on bonus questions. By far the most number of correct bonus questions without a bonus error. Um, Katie from Lighthouse in prelims is 62 of 65. So this is just regular questions. So an incredible accuracy in prelims. Only three errors on 65 jumps. Um, and similarly, Katie is 18 of 20 in semifinals. So a quizzer who knows knows what they're good at and is ruthless on that stuff and just an incredible high accuracy. She makes it look easy. I think I think that's what's what's uh, so wonderful about Katie. Like she comes in uh, to my room and she makes quizzing out look easy and enjoyable and she has fun in the process. It's it's great quizzing. Now, some other good um, accuracy rates in semis. So Micaiah is not 9 out of 10, and Jacob from EBC is 8 out of 9. So both of them only have one error in their semis quizzing, which is much harder than prelims. Um, looking at Constellation A, Stephen from Dallas is 19 out of 20, just one error in Constellation A quizzes. Katie, um, similar theme here, is 14 out of 15 in her Con A quizzes. Noah is 14 out of 15, and Lindsay is 27 out of 30. So those are all very, very impressive rates. And I tried to pick quizzers who both um, had a very good accuracy, but also had won a lot of jumps. So there are quizzers who have, say, one right and none wrong in semis or consolation. So technically a higher accuracy, but I I think it's a lot more impressive when you've won at least double-digit jumps. Looking at um, Constellation B, Yael is 12 out of 12, and Mariah is 8 out of 8, so they have not aired in Constellation B. Brienne is 21 out of 22, Max is 11 out of 12, and Annie is 26 out of 30. So lots of good quizzing there. Looking at um, kind of a church and program level, Dallas has the highest accuracy as a church, almost 88% accuracy. Next closest is ABC, just shy of 81%. And as a, a funny aside... Dallas and ABC also don't have any recorded fouls. So um, there's not, it's definitely not a big deal to commit a foul, but it's nice when all of your quizzers are able to jump on every single question. 
ABC as a program is 29 of 35 on bonuses, by far our highest rate of um, accuracy on bonus questions. I like this one. Lighthouse has, uh, now they definitely have the most teams, but they still have 72 third-person or fourth-person bonuses as a program, and that's pretty cool. ABC has 38, and Eastridge has 16. And then my last stats thing is kind of looking at this whole year so far, so through three meets, and that's accuracy by bracket. So this is all the quizzers, um, but looking specifically at quizzes of a single type. So in prelims, our whole district is at 74.3% accuracy. In semifinals, 72.1%. In consolation A, 70.4%. And in consolation B, 73.6%. So as you can see, the difference, you know, 70.4 to 74.3 is less than four percentage points. And it just shows how, um, I think it's the structures of quizzing, you know, with quiz outs and air outs and toss ups and bonuses um, that kind of reward a certain level of prudence and cause people to modulate their jumping speeds so that they are scoring at similar rates and have similar rates of accuracy across brackets. And that is my list. All right. Very cool. Well, let's move on to something, a a bracket of uh, questions or a bracket of ideas that we were going to talk about last podcast, but we ran out of time. And that was some rules ideas. Now, some of these are curious. Some of these are compelling. uh, Some of these are kind of random. uh, But uh, we thought we'd kind of throw these out there and kind of talk about the pros and the cons to each of these. Uh, and by the way, if you like, or if you dislike, or if you vehemently hate any of these ideas, please let us know. We'd very much like to hear from you. And if you have other rules ideas that we're not going to be necessarily talking about, uh, in this podcast, we'd also like to hear from you as well. So the first one was a finals second place and third place teams have consistent uh, tiebreakers. So uh, first placement and then points. So Scott, do you want to dive into this one a little bit? This is more like a stats sort of thing. Yep. And this definitely is a small issue because if you're not the team that wins, I doubt you care a ton whether you end up in second or third place. Um, and there's also a chance that I have misread the rule book, but I've read this over and over and over again because it, it never seemed to make sense to me. But currently, like in finals, a team has to win twice to take first. So if the same team wins the first two, um, the rule book says the team that took two seconds is second, which is kind of phrased we- weird because it's not a foregone conclusion that one of those other teams took two seconds. You could have taken... Um, one-third in one second. But then it says, otherwise, most points. So um, for if there's only two, if finals goes two quizzes, then second and third place are decided by placements and then points. Makes sense to me. I like valuing placements ahead of points. Um, and it kind of forces teams to grind out the end of quizzes to try to grab a second place if they can. Well, then it, it goes on to say, if finals takes three quizzes, second is determined by most points. So placement is not a factor at all, which is weird to me, because if it takes three quizzes, it's po- um, it will be the case that one of those teams that did not win um, has won one of the finals quizzes. Um, and the fact that they don't, don't get second place automatically seems weird to me. And then it goes on to say if it takes four quizzes, second is determined by number of seconds, i.e. placements, then points. So it's almost the way that I want it, but it's just weird how if finals goes three quizzes, placements is not part of the calculation for second and third, which I find curious. 
I find curious as well. And I agree. I would, uh, I'd like to have it be more consistent, uh, methodology, methodologically, uh, like you've described. And I think it would make for a shorter, um, shorter language in the rulebook, which is always better. It could definitely be that, um, based on if finals goes two, three or four quizzes, there are some scenarios that are, that could never happen. Um, and so these rules were written in light of that, but I think it was just, it should just be simple. Like second is placements, number of first, seconds, thirds. And if we need to break that, then it's by total points. So looking at our second point, um, this is a PNW rule that actually is gone now, thankfully. Um, but I don't know if other districts do it as well, but PNW used to have a two team tiebreaker quiz right after prelims if two teams tied for one of the kind of key dividing spots between the brackets. So the brackets are nine teams. So if two teams tied for ninth or 18th, we would do a two-team tiebreaker quiz. We've since changed that. You know, all the teams have six prelim quizzes, and um, we'll break that tie based on head-to-head, then placements, then um, total errors. And I think... You know, obviously districts can decide whatever they want is best for their district. Would I, would I like this at internationals? Probably. I mean, internationals has 12 prelims and then XYZs. And so if there's a tie there, I mean, I guess you could have a two-team quiz because it is a big deal making semifinals or not in internationals. But I sure wouldn't be upset if it just went to a tiebreaker <laughs> after 13 prelims. I, don't, I would not be upset if I was the coach of one of those teams. Yeah, certainly. I think you should take the third one, Griffin. Well, yes. So the third one is my idea. And I think all reasonable people should agree with me. So that means, of course, if you disagree with me, you're not being reasonable. And that is to decrease all point values in scoring and statistics and everything by one decimal place. So the idea being that a correct question is not 20, it's just two. Uh, If you get a bonus, it's one point, not 10. Uh, third quizzer bonus, you get, you know, along with the, the two points, you get your ex- additional one. So you get a total of three points. If you quiz out, you get a nine instead of a 90. Uh, and it turns out that like pretty much everything is exactly the same as what you would expect. It's just that we end up not having a zero. And so, you know, you're saying, well, if it's all exactly the same, uh, why make the change? It's because the zeros are just wasted space. They're inefficient. They're silly. They don't do anything. There's no value and good from them. Uh, somebody came up with the idea of they, they really liked zero and wanted to write zero a whole bunch of times way back in in the, the, the dawn of, of the age of, of Bible quizzing. And we've just sort of stuck around with it ever since. And I, I say it's time that we modernize our mathematics and do away with the zero. So that's my idea. All right. Maybe in the year that we get rid of the penny, um, we'll also decrease... Quiz points by a decimal point. No, 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 no. Logical fallacy. No, no, no. Apple orange. Because here's the thing. I can charge you $2.37 for a mocha, but there is no way to use the the zero placement in in scoring. It only happens in averages. And uh, you only, you only, you would only use that, that placement uh, in averages and you use a decimal in averages anyway. So it makes no difference. I think I'm saying that a, a similarly feasible idea, if relatively less feasible, um, is quite unlikely to happen. But if the penny does end up going away, it might mean that the end of uh, the zeros in quizzing are also going away. I think I think the way it's going to happen is some enterprising statistician 
at say Great West or something just decides we're not we're just not going to use zeros and we go through Great West and everybody kind of goes through the shock and horror of like where are the zeros I feel so like naked without all the zeros surrounding me and then at the end of the meet we realize oh you know what we really didn't need the zero after all it's it's okay and then we could we could we could wish we could say you know bon voyage zero you know we wish you well but we don't need you anymore uh, we've moved on we've evolved beyond the need for for extra zeros I I see the logic but it, it's still gonna be it's going to feel weird when a quizzer's up there celebrating first place with an average of 8.29. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. I mean, that's better than what they'd get in, in like, ice skating. Uh, I guess so. It would take some adjusting. So our next rules idea is, I think, a fun one, and that's third, fourth, and fifth person bonuses are increasing. So a third person bonus is 10, a fourth person bonus is 20, and a fifth person bonus is 30. Now... This would not pose any difficulties for stats because those bonuses already don't count for individual averages, so there's no impact on individual averages at all. Um, now, it would encourage larger teams, so teams that have four and five members would have an advantage over a team that has three members. Um, and, yeah, it's just kind of putting more incentive on having a strong team. And so one of the longstanding push and pulls of quizzing is individual versus team quizzing. Because the stronger a team is, the harder it is for the, each of those individuals on that team to score well themselves. And, I mean, this is just adding another wrinkle to that um, tough optimization problem that coaches have to do when they're deciding how to construct teams for their church. Which is yeah. another reason that I love internationals where, I mean, most quizzers could care less how they score individually. And so this kind of scenario where if you have five contributing members you can have um, you can gain extra points in quizzes over teams that don't have five contributing members. I think it'd be super awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so I mean, here's the thing: the it, it seems like it's a big deal, um, and 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 to to basically say, okay, third bone third person bonus is ten, fourth person bonus is twenty, fifth person bonus is thirty, and you think, well, wow, so that means the fifth person jumps and gets a question. They've earned fifty points for the team in that one action. That seems like a lot. That seems substantial, um, and it is. It is substantial, but. I would sort of counter that by saying, but they're already getting the fifth person bonus anyway, right? So the incremental difference is, you know, it's, it's big. It's, 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 uh, it's 20 extra points there, right? But it, I would, I would argue that having a fifth person being able to jump and get a question is so substantially valuable and also so rare that uh, this just sort of encourages that extremely rare behavior, right? I think there's already an advantage a team of four people have over a, a team of three. I think there's not really an advantage a team of five has over four because of the whole subbing uh, thing that has to happen. But that being said, Gig Harbor proved at this last meet that if you have a team of five where all five people are capable of getting up and getting a question... Uh, you can rack up a huge score, uh, even with the five people that are there without the bonus increasing the exponential, in or not exponential, but the increasing bonus uh, structure that we're talking about. So that being said, this rule probably doesn't have a ton of extra value necessarily because there's already such an advantage to getting the fifth person to get a get a bonus or it's not a bonus question to get the the fifth person bonus already 
but I think it, it sort of encourages just a little bit more something that we want to encourage, which is the idea of, you know, your, your first and second chairs encouraging your, your third and fourth chairs to get up there and get a question and building up the quality of, of, of your team, uh, throughout the entire process. Absolutely. And I think it keeps quizzes exciting and interesting all the way to the end. Uh, if you didn't have these third, fourth, and fifth person bonuses, it's very hard for a team behind by a good amount of points on, you know, once you get to the last quarter of the quiz to make up that, that, um, those points. And so oftentimes a team, if now again, they will have to quiz well to be in the situation, but they are able to sit out the last few questions of a quiz. Um, but I remember an internationals quiz where going into question 16, I think we were down 90 points. Um, and at the end of the quiz, the team ahead, two errors, in um, air points that got them negative 10 each and we got a correct question and a third and a fourth person bonus and we won the quiz on question 20 and without those sorts of extra bonuses we really wouldn't have had a chance and that top team could probably just have sat back but they kept pushing made a few errors and we picked up those bonuses because we did have a deep team and i think it kept that quiz exciting right to the end yeah and that would be fantastic and the, the other thing I, ju- I just want to take a step back for half a second. I want to make sure everybody understands what we're talking about here are ideas that we would l- maybe like to see um, uh, across some of these uh, things. But these are not rules ideas that we are implementing either, you know, at the district level or at Great West or internationals or anything like this. These are just sort of ideas that we're kind of throwing out here for now. Sure. And then the last one that we have is get rid of all substitution rules. So the staying out three questions, if a quizzed out quizzer leaves the stage, they can't come back in. Um, We'll get to the third one because I actually think that that has some merit. But I think these questions are kind of aimed at helping um, more inexperienced quizzers have more stage time. But in my experience, it's it's kind of awkward to have a rule book do something that you wish coaches would just do anyway. Um, and if they're not going to do it, have the rulebook force them to do it. And I've kind of seen this with a lot of things about Quizmasters too. Like there are substandard Quizmastering rulings that I've witnessed or substandard que- question writing. And so I want to write a rule to make it so that can't happen, but it doesn't work out in that ideal scenario. And oftentimes you need to write a rule book that um, is kind of principles-based and guidelines-based and have some amount of trust that the people doing the work are going to do a good job. And I think these substitution rules are the same vein, you know, like if we're prohibiting a coach from subbing out a quizzer and subbing them in a a question later, um, it just, it feels like an awkward thing that you're not really going to get the end result that you want. And it adds complexity to things. The one substitution rule that I think does make sense is only one substitution per time out because without that rule, in the world of assigned seat bonuses, teams could take a timeout before the bonus, because you can take a timeout before the bonus, um, and then substitute, swap two quizzers, and then two other quizzers, <laughs> um, and get the exact quizzer that they want onto a specific seat. Whereas the way it currently is, um, if they know which seat the bonus is going for, their only options are to have the quizzer who's already sitting there get the bonus, or the sub that's coming in. Um, again, though, that's a small thing. Um, so you could also decide that you want the rule. Um, 
you can have more than one substitution per timeout, but you can't sub before a bonus or something like that if that's the scenario you want to avoid, which I think would make sense um, because the point of assigned seat bonuses is to force every member of the team to potentially answer a bonus question. Sounds cool. Sounds cool. Well, shall we uh, move on to our listener question? Yeah, I think it's kind of a fun one. Yeah. So we got by email a question from a listener, which we always love uh, receiving. But this one in particular was fascinating. Uh, I, I found it very fascinating and very interesting. So this comes from uh, the question comes out of uh, John chapter 13, specifically in verse 34. And uh, it'd be good if you have an opportunity to look this up in CBQZ or in some reference material. You can see the color coding of the words that are there that kind of is helpful in understanding the nature of this this question. But the question was essentially, is this a... Sorry, sorry, I should recite the question. Imagine a question from verse 34 of what command? And the verse reads, a new command I give you, colon, love one another, period, as I have loved you, comma, so you must love one another. So a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And the question was uh, proposed was what command, a, a chapter reference question, uh, command is a, a key to the uh, chapter. So you say, well, what command and is the answer a chapter reference question or a multiple answer chapter reference question based on, well, is the answer a new command or is it a new command and then love one another? And as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Are those three different parts of a multiple answer question or is it really just one answer, all of them together as the single answer? Or is it just a new command is the single only answer for the chapter reference versus a multiple uh, multiple answer chapter reference. So, Scott, what are your thoughts on this? All right, let's take it in pieces. So let's first look at the quotation portion, which which is love one another as I loved you, so you must love one another. I generally don't like to write multiple sentences, multiple sentences in a single quotation as a multiple answer, if I can help it. Now, there are cases like in John 12, 13, they took palm branches and went out to meet him shouting, and then the quotation begins, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. And each of those three chunks in the quotation are bracketed by their own quotation marks, which to me signifies more separation. And so I might write that one as a multiple answer. They took palm branches and not to meet him shouting, what? Um, but I, if someone wanted to write that as not a multiple answer, I don't think that that would be wrong. And then in this case, I think a new command I give you what, like that question, whatever type it might be, is 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 going to be a single answer. I don't think it's going to be a multiple answer. But then moving on to the specific question proposed, which is what command? Now, command is a chapter reference word, so this is going to be a chapter reference question of some sort, either chapter reference or chapter reference multiple multiple answer. Now, we see this sort of construct all the time, a new command. What command? New command. Um, Chapter reference, clear. uh, People understand it. But it, it is very obvious from this verse that the command being talked about is the kind of quotation part, love one another, as I've loved you, so you must love one another. So I can see the argument that the answer to what command is two things. There's the adjective new, and then there's the actual quotation. Now, my thoughts about it are, now I had some help. I I try to bounce this off people because generally people are more articulate than I am and are able to think pretty clearly. Um, And in this case, like what in Bible quizzing is used in many different ways to ask many different things. You know, 
oftentimes we're asking what joy, inex- um, indescribable and glorious joy. We're asking like, what are the qualities of joy? But we can only use one word, so we're going to use what, you know? Or asking what nard, um, and we're really asking pure nard. What is the adjective attached to the word nard? But we only get one word. So similarly here, we only get one word. So what command? A new command. That's an adjective. That's modifying command. And then what command? Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. That's kind of a clarification of the word command. And so to me, it's a little bit awkward to call this a multiple answer because the what is asking kind of really two different grammatical questions, even though the specific nature of those grammatical questions is implied because in quizzing we can only use one word, one interrogative word in the material. Now, Another scenario was, what if you switch the verse around just a tiny bit and says, I give you a new command, love one another, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. I think if the verse was phrased like that, the question, I give you what, would be written as a single answer all day long. No one would claim that a new command is one answer, and then love one another, as I have loved you, so you must love one another, is a second answer to the question, I give you what. And it's just the way that this is phrased makes you wonder, and that's why the question was posed in the first place, like, could what command potentially be a multiple answer? Yep. Um, I have nothing to add. You basically, I had all these little ideas in my head, and you've pretty much hit every single one of them. Um, Yes, you are correct. (laughs) Well, I kind of have an ace in the hole when it comes to these things, and I tend to overthink them. And when I ask them, they state it very, very simply um, and quickly. And in this case, it took a while. And so I think this is a pretty specific and interesting case. And my exhortation is if you're a quizzer, I'd, you know, especially going to Great West, internationals, winter nationals, I'd be prepared to hear this question as either a chapter reference or a chapter reference multiple answer. If you're a question writer, I think it's clearest to write this as just a chapter reference. And you could write it as a chapter reference with one, both, with one or both of the answers. You know, I don't think it's a problem to say what command, a new command, or what command, as I've loved you, so you must love another. You know, I think those are fine to do as a question writer. I, but I do think a single answer CR is the, is the clearest. And then um, as, a, as a quiz master, I definitely want to think about this be, so that if I get a challenge, I'm able to rule on the challenge and articulate my reasoning in a way that I can defend from the rule book and in a principles-based way that I can use again and again in similar situations and not kind of just treat this as like, well, it feels like a single answer. And so I'm going to say it's valid as a single answer chapter reference. Yeah, agreed completely. All right. Well, with that uh, taken care of, uh, Great West is coming up. Is there anything you want to announce or talk about with uh, Great West coming up? Yeah. um, So... PNW is done with three of our five district meets that happened before Great West, so we're moving along, and the next couple of meets will happen pretty quickly. We are headed to Canada, so we are crossing the border, so that requires a little bit extra preparation. We do not need passports necessarily. If you have passports, those are the easiest thing to have, but make sure your your quizzer or potential Great West quizzer has good identification for when we are crossing the border. We're going to have a practice for our Great West Quizzers on March 30 kind of help you get a little extra preparation before uh, the trip. And the trip kicks off April 4. So we'll meet at a local church and head on off to Idaho for the night and then on to Canada on Friday the 5th. And then we get to meet up with Western Canada and Canadian Midwest. 
Very cool. Very much fun. Uh, I am looking forward to that uh, quiz meet. I always look forward to every quiz meet, but that quiz meet in particular is just an enormous amount of fun. I think it's it's much lower stress, I think, than internationals. Uh, but the quizzing is, is very high. The quality of quizzing is very high, and the quality of the officials is typically uh, pretty good. Uh, and so it's just a it's a wonderful opportunity to fellowship with people for uh, almost like a miniature version of internationals, uh, as it were, and, uh, in a way probably over representative of maybe the upper end of, of the internationals experience if it was a percentage thereof even at that level. All right. Well, with that little bit of word salad uh, in the podcast, I want to move on a little bit to talk about some CBQZ updates, actually just one big update. So as of a few days ago, I forget exactly how many days ago it was. I think it was maybe Friday or Saturday or something. Uh, CBQZ is no longer a Pacific Northwest CMA Bible quizzing only sort of system. It had always been open to anybody uh, from anywhere to, to sign up and, and join in and see what it was all about. But it was uh, you would basically just be signing up into the, the PNW CMA uh, program. Well, now there are a whole host of programs uh, that are in CBQZ. There's Canadian Midwest. There's Central, there's Eastern Canada, there's Great Lakes, there's uh, Mid-Atlantic, there's Northeastern, there's Western Canada, there's even a CMA CQLT pseudo-district, as it were, that lives in there now as well. Uh, so each of these districts can implement their own sort of rules policies, their own exceptions and abstractions to how scorekeeping works and how question types are defined or the variance, uh, the distribution of, of questions. All of that can be defined based on the individual districts and separated out by districts. So it gives you a little bit of uh, customization capability if you happen to be a district coordinator or on the rules committee for your particular district. And all of the districts right now are quizzing with the CMA rule set, but that doesn't have to be the case. So, for example, if you happen to be in a non-CMA uh, quizzing uh, situation and you want to use CBQZ, uh, CBQZ can be made to support your rule set, uh, however different that might be. It can support world quizzing. It can support all kinds of variants around how quizzing works. You really just need to have some material a question and an answer and a few uh, ideas of how question types have distributions and so forth. And if you define that stuff, you can pretty much, you know, have customization however you want within your particular district. So if you happen to be a member of one of those districts that I listed out and you are curious about CBQZ, go ahead and uh, head over to cbqz.org slash app. And uh, if you don't remember the slash app part, you can get to the app from the homepage of just cbqz.org and then sign up for an account and we'll get you into whatever district that you uh, sign up into and get you approved there and show you around a little bit. And uh, maybe you can see some value into the quizzing stuff that you happen to be working on and other stuff within either your districts or other districts that you happen to be volunteering with. And of course, if there if there are any questions about anything related to CBQZ or this podcast or CMA quizzing or PNW CMA quizzing, we would like to hear from you. Uh, we always want to hear from you. Uh, if, if you could just toss us an email at iq at cbqz.org, uh, we would love to answer questions directly by email. And then uh, for a lot of the questions that we get by email, we like to feature those questions on the podcast as well. So it's an opportunity to have your questions uh, get answered quickly and then uh, have us talk about it 
on a future episode. You can always follow us uh, on Twitter as well, at Inside Quizzing. Uh, and with that, I will bid you all adieu. And uh, thanks all for listening, and I will see you next time. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, everyone. Have a good night. <laughs>